Captain. Let's move. ABC Thursdays. Firefighters, we're family. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. The subject has explosive chemicals. Get down! With fiery romances. You're the love of my life. And Andy is finally in charge. I'm going to be the best damn captain the station has ever seen. Station 19. All new Thursdays, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Riddle Me That is a true crime podcast that deals with adult themes. Some episodes explore disturbing topics such as murder, abuse, sexual violence, drug abuse, suicide, and self-harm. Please listen at your own risk. Theories discussed in episodes may not be the opinion of the host. Welcome back to the show, Riddlers. This part of my coverage on the disappearance of Alicia Rudd will focus on the investigation what was and what could have been done, as well as the risk factors in Relisha's life. Today I have with me former FBI Special Agent Gina Osborne. Welcome to the show, Gina. Thank you, Jules. Gina, can you tell my listeners a little about your background in law enforcement? I spent 22 years with the FBI. I retired in 2018, and that's where I worked everything from organized crime to international terrorism. And my last 11 years, I was the assistant special agent in charge of cyber and computer forensics for FBI Los Angeles. And I was also in the Army for six years before that, where I was a counterintelligence special agent. Do you want to tell my listeners about your podcast, Behind the Crime Scene? I would love to. I host Behind the Crime Scene, a true crime podcast, and we go beyond the yellow tape and into the lives of first responders, investigators, and prosecutors who talk about notorious cases that they've worked on and the impact that these cases has had on them. Uh, And most recently, I had a three-part series on the Aurora, Colorado movie theater massacre, where I interviewed the Aurora police chief and the FBI's special agent in charge who led the response and investigation into that case. And um, I've also spoken with Marsha Clark's boss, Bill Hodgman, who talked talked about the O.J. Simpson case and how that case still haunts him. And once a month, I'll do a Gielan Maxwell update, and I'm going to be doing that next week uh, to talk about what's going on with the Jeffrey Epstein case with Gielan Maxwell. So if anyone is interested, we are available through your favorite podcast provider, and you can learn more about the show on our website at BehindTheCrimeScene.com. I highly recommend Gina's pod, and I'm going to play a promo at the end of this episode, so go check it out. I want to go back to the beginning of the story. We know when Relisha was two years old, CPS became involved in her life and the life of her mother, Shamika Young, as well as her siblings. This is troubling. In your opinion, does this instability open Relisha up to outside influences as she grows older? Well, I just want everyone to know that I did not work this case. However, I can tell you from my experience being in charge of crimes against children for five years in the FBI, um, this is just such a very, very sad story. And the fact that CPS did come into this little girl's life so early when she was only two years old, that is definitely a concern because usually when CPS comes in, there's some sort of neglect or abuse going on. So um, it's very sad to me to know that they came into her life when she was so young, for sure. Living in neighborhoods and shelters such as Relisha did opens her up to a variety of unsavory characters, those with with emotional and mental instability, as well as criminal backgrounds. Anytime a child is around that is just a recipe... uh, is just a recipe for disaster because when a child, if they're being neglected or if they're being abused at home, to be opened up to a whole nother element that could possibly do that to them, that's just a dangerous situation for this little girl, Relisha. Do high crime neighborhoods increase the likelihood someone will become a victim 
Or are the crimes often drug-related, with drug dealers killing other drug dealers? Well, it's going to depend on where the neighborhood is and what you mean by a high-crime neighborhood. On our podcast, on my podcast, a few weeks ago, actually last month, we interviewed a couple of gang investigators, and they talked about how gang violence impacts the entire community. So if she was living in a high-crime neighborhood, there's a higher likelihood that some danger can come upon her through outside influences. Yeah, that makes total sense. As someone who's worked in law enforcement, what are your thoughts on a recidivist offender with multiple felonies, such as Khalil Tatum, having access and exposure to children through his job as a janitor? You know, that's a really interesting question. I've I worked a case in 1997 called the Anthony Martinez kidnapping. Little Anthony Martinez, he was probably about the same age as Relisha when she was murdered. But when you look at these child predators or pedophiles, they are very, very good at grooming kids. And they're very, very good at putting themselves in the lives of children. So when I work this Anthony Martinez case, one of the things that happens when a child is kidnapped is the FBI and the local law enforcement will go out and they'll interview, we call them 290 registrants in the United States, and those are registered sex offenders. And you would be surprised at how many registered sex offenders that we interviewed were working as the bowling coach down at the bowling alley or somehow inserted themselves in the lives of children. That's terrifying. And the fact that, okay, so in my past episodes, I when I spoke to Ashley and spoke to Kate, they both said pretty much the same thing in that sex offenders and child predators are probably better profilers than like, you know, probably the best at the FBI because they've got this ability to find this ideal victim, somehow manage to target them, and break down their walls or insert themselves into that child's life. Jill, that's exactly what they do. And the fact there, and they have to be good at it, otherwise they wouldn't get what their ultimate goal is. And that's having the child trust them so the child can be victimized. So yeah, they are very, very good at it. And they're very kind to the child. And they and there's a grooming process that takes place to gain the child's trust so they can go down the road of abusing that child. It just blows my mind that in today's like information age, that perpetrators are still able to insert themselves into the lives of a child without there being proper checks and balances. I mean, a bowling coach, a janitor at a homeless shelter. It seems like these are jobs that you're going to have an incredible amount of access to children. It seems criminal that nobody would check into their backgrounds. Well, it's even more, I mean, it's. I think it's easier now for kids to become prey to these predators because they're inviting them into their own homes and their own bedrooms through their mobile devices and through their computers. So yeah, it is a very, very scary time. And uh, parents have to be very, very careful when they give their child any sort of um, mobile device, because uh, when they do it, they're getting giving them access to the outside world. And that's where these predators prey. Oh, I can imagine you saw it all working at cyber crimes. Yes, absolutely. All right, so let's factor in Khalil's predilection or love of young girls. It seems clear that he pays a considerable and appropriate amount of time to girls at the shelter, according to witnesses. Does this type of individual pose a significant risk to these children in a vulnerable situation? Absolutely, for sure, because that's exactly where he needs to be in order to, number one, have access, and number two, the child in this situation may or may not have parents that are really paying attention to what's going on with them. So he can kind of single somebody out like Relisha out of the herd of all of the kids who are at this uh, shelter. And that's when he can do what he wants to do. It's so funny that you just said the herd because I literally imagined a lion and a bunch of gazelles around and this lion just looking for the one that's kind of sick or injured and just waiting to pounce. 
That's exactly what they do. And they're very patient and they're very, very good because once they have a child on the line, then they're getting their needs met. And having, I've been to Crimes Against Children conferences and just really understanding the mind of the predator. And it's absolutely fascinating because it's not just in a homeless shelter. These are these are lawyers and doctors and your neighbor up the street. So it, you really can't say that it would only be someone who could be found at a homeless shelter because we would arrest people, professional people, um, you know, people who have prominent jobs all the time for this type of thing. Oh my gosh. I remember watching, what was that one with Chris Hansen, To Catch a Predator? Yes, To Catch a Predator. My favorite show when it was going on. Oh, I absolutely love that show. There's something so satisfying about watching these child predators get taken down. You know, and that that is so true because these people, one time we had a case where a gentleman from Arizona, we're in California, so it was probably about an eight-hour, nine-hour drive for him, and he thought he was going to have a meeting with a 13-year-old girl. So he got into the car that day, and he drove all the way to California only to find out that the 13-year-old girl that he was talking to on line was a 45-year-old FBI agent who arrested him. So yeah, it that is so true, and it's so scary. And I don't know if you remember that episode where the man showed up in the van. He was a bald man in a van, and he brought his five-year-old child to that meeting. That was just, I mean, that I, I'll just never forget that episode. It was so, so compelling and so scary that someone like that exists. There was another episode with this prominent cancer research doctor, and he got busted. And it was just like, you see, it's they come from all walks of life. A lot of these men are organized and intelligent. There's a reason that they're successful in not getting caught to a certain point. And they live double lives. When I would work a kidnapping case or working these other cases, you would go into the house and it would be, it would look from the outside like a normal family. And we would have to figure out, okay, is it the father who is online looking at child pornography? Is it the son who's 12 years old looking at, you know, child pornography that, that is sort of age, you know, his age. So, you know, it would be really interesting. But every time we went in to do a search warrant on a case like that, it would just, it would just wreck the family because the secret would be revealed that somebody in that household was reviewing child pornography. And there was a prison study in North Carolina many decades ago that indicated a high, high percentage of people who view child pornography are actually abusing children. So um, so that's scary in and of itself that it's not people just, people aren't just looking at it. They're, they're doing something with that in mind. Yeah. So it's sort of like a gateway drug. Eventually that's not going to be enough stimulation. The brain's going to require more for the same result. And that's when that will bleed into somebody's life and they'll start to predate on children. That's absolutely true. And in order for these people, because they go into these secret um, societies online, underground things, and in order for them to receive child pornography that hasn't been out there and people haven't seen, they have to produce it themselves and share it. So unless they can find it from someone else to produce it, they have to make it themselves in order to be part of this group to see other photographs. So yeah, it's, it's just a very horrible underworld that uh, a lot of people don't know about. Well, working in cyber, I'm sure you saw all the worst parts of the dark web. Yes. Relisha referred to the shelter as the trap house. So I have mentioned this throughout. It's somewhere gangsters sell drugs from. Is that how you would describe a trap house or am I missing any key details? You know, it's funny. I didn't, I worked gangs back in the 90s. And so I really am not up on the, the, new terms or the newer terms, but uh, I went online and I studied up on what a trap house was. And it sounds to me that it's like a crack house somewhere where they either make drugs or they sell drugs or people go to um, buy drugs and and, and uh, spend time getting their high there. So uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I'm, I don't have any firsthand information about a trap house, but that's what it sounds like it is. But when you when you worked, you know, gangs back in the 90s, it might not have been called a trap house, but you had experiences with crack houses and those sorts of environments, right? 
Yes. Well, back then it was more um, cocaine and marijuana and, uh, and, and ecstasy. That was a big thing back then. Interesting. When was the crack epidemic? Was that in the 80s? You know, I think, no, it was probably more into, gosh, maybe I, I never did crack cases. I was um, working more organized crime, but gosh, no, I would think that that was more in the 80s and the 90s, maybe. Yeah, I think so. Does the fact that Relisha refers to her home as a trap house hold any significance to you, Gina? It's very sad to me that a young girl has to cope with the chaos that comes with living in that environment. Because if that's the case, who's getting her up in the morning to make sure that she goes to school? Who's making sure that she's fed? Who's making sure that she has the basic necessities of life. And if she was brought up in that type of a scenario where, you know, she's surrounded by people who are on drugs all the time, I mean, just a very sad place for a child to be in, very dangerous place for a child to be in. And especially if the parents are on drugs all the time, then that makes the children even more vulnerable to outside influences from predators. Yes, because who's watching the kids while the parents are on drugs? Exactly. And it's easy for someone to swoop in and be that responsible shoulder to cry on or that parental figure when the child is clearly needing that. That's true. Very true. Okay. So let's go to Relisha's experiences at school. There's one circumstance where Relisha and her brother tried to stay extra time at the school after class was dismissed. The children were sent home after the school spoke to Shamika. However, they didn't go home. They went to a laundromat where they were discovered by police they clearly don't want to go back to the shelter. In that type of situation, I mean, that's an indicator that the shelter likely wasn't a safe place for them. They didn't feel comfortable there and they didn't want to go. And so they found an alternate location to spend time at so they didn't have to be in that environment. That's what it sounds like to me. Yeah, it just breaks my heart. Just the two of them, like hiding in a laundromat, trying to avoid going back to somewhere that should be a safe place, even though it's a shelter, it should be at least a place of comfort because their mother, Shamika Young, is there, but it clearly isn't providing any level of stability or comfort for these children. Well, and I wonder, I mean, is it the shelter or is it the parents or is it the people who are staying at the shelter? Um, I know a lot, yeah, a lot of shelters are good places. They're safe places for pe for people to go. So I don't know if we can necessarily blame it on the shelter itself. Uh, there could have been other circumstances surrounding life at that shelter that we don't know about, which could be a reason why they didn't want to go back to it. Every day we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you're ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I mean, the location in and of itself, it's by a morgue and a methadone clinic, and they've got raccoons in the shelter, so that could be a contributing factor, but there also could be some other threat, be it from the parents or from someone who's hurting these children. Absolutely. I agree. I agree with you on that. In lower-income areas, such as poor neighborhoods and shelters, do predators use these as hunting grounds due to the lack of oversight from officials or law enforcement in some cases? You know, Jules, predators are going to go wherever they're going to be successful at finding prey, grooming those children, getting those children away from the parents so they can abuse the kids. So I would say that 
anywhere. I mean, it could be in Beverly Hills that this is happening. I don't think it necessarily, we have to look at it, like I said, at the shelter. I think that, you know, any sort of child predator, like I talked about the bowling coach, you know, he's going to find a place uh, where children are, where he can get access to them. And that's what they're looking for. Depending on what their socioeconomic status is, they're going to attempt to find the perfect hunting ground that will suit their needs. The hunting ground that not only will it suit their needs, where they are going to go unnoticed, where they're going to be looked at as the nice person, the trustable person, or the trustworthy person. And that's, you know, because they're not going to want to stick out because then everyone's going to have their eye on them. So they're going to go in a place where they can blend in, where they're going to have access to kids, and uh, and they're going to be a big hero. This reminds me so much of was it the second season of Mindhunter on the Atlanta child murders Mm -hmm. when they go there and they're trying to figure out who's doing this to the children. Is it somebody white or is it somebody black? And then they've got the white guys who are from the FBI and they go to the neighborhood and they realize that everybody's staring at them. They Mm -hmm. don't fit in. They're noticed and that a predator has to fit in, in that environment and get by unnoticed, right. In order to not draw attention And that was sort of what happened in that case, right? Yes. And look at the world gymnastics doctor. Dr. Larry Nasser. Exactly. So there he was in a position where all of the girls loved him, where he's very prominent in what he does. And he created a level of trust with these girls because, I mean, imagine being one of those girls and the doctor said, this is what I'm going to do to you and it's going to help you. So if it were you or me or our daughters who really weren't in that environment and didn't know him, they would say, wait a minute, that's crazy. But how many years did he spend getting the trust of all of these girls? And if and if he said it was okay, then it must be okay because they trusted him. And, and look at that environment. You know, he was a, a renowned doctor in that environment. It's true. And then you look at like, you know, Jerry Sandusky, right? There's a certain level of cover-up going on because this person is bringing success. They're doing something really great for an organization. So people have this vested interest in keeping them in that particular position. So they seem to cover up for all of these disgusting misdeeds and crimes against children. Yes. And the fact that Sandusky, he had some sort of child's charity organization that he was in charge of or something. So that was his excuse for taking kids to football games and doing that. Well, while he was grooming these kids, everybody thought he was a great guy because he would take these underprivileged kids into these games and different environments when all the time he was uh, setting them up to be abused. So sad because it just leaves this legacy of pain where all of these individuals who have been victims of child se- childhood sexual abuse, they're now left to deal with it. And you see the after effects often. Like, it's just so heartbreaking. And that, does, that doesn't go away. I mean, once that trust is violated, I've when I've gone to these Crimes Against Children conferences, I've listened to these adults who explain what their journey was. And I mean, they're doing it because they want to help us, law enforcement, be able to have a better understanding as to how these predators would work and what their minds were. But I can tell you, I mean, even with the priests who are taking advantage of the kids, I mean, those are things, I mean, they affect your relationships all the way for the rest of your life when you trusted somebody who violated you. And a priest is an interesting one too, because haven't they done studies on the fact that you don't necessarily have to be a pedophile going into a position where you have access to children, but being in that position where you take a vow of chastity can bring out those sort of behaviors where it's sort of like, is it nature or nurture, right? Specifically with priests. I'm not sure if I believe that because I think it's just like if you're married and you like men, I don't know if you're born that way, but I'm not sure that just because you aren't having sex, I mean, you can always look at adult pornography. You can always do that. I think, I don't know. I mean, that that's really hard to, I'm not sure if I agree with that, but I do think that that's a perfect opportunity for someone who wants to do that to have access to children. 
I don't know if I necessarily agree with that either. When I heard it, I thought it sounded kind of strange, but I, I'm not a neuroscientist, so I don't necessarily understand the brain. Right. Right. <laughs> right. But, but at the same time, like it's, it's possible. I do think that nature and nurture have an effect on everything. And I don't think that you can just say it's a hundred percent circumstances that's going to indicate what your sexual orientation is or any, you know, paraphilias or, or anything like that. I think both are going to be contributing factors and to say it's all nurture is to put a little too much weight in that over there. I don't know. Well, I can just say that these people who are like this, who are pedophiles, that doesn't go away. I mean, it's not something where, okay, I went to prison for 20 years and that fixed me. I don't want to get in trouble anymore, so I'm not going to do this anymore. The recidivism is so high with these pedophiles that it's something that they just can't not have. And it's and it's it's really a lifestyle because everything they do is really centered ab- about getting that fix. It's basically like telling somebody who's attracted to a man, say if you're a woman and you're attracted to a man, it's like, well, you can never be with a man again. And that's just the way your life is going to be. And to tell somebody like that, it's like, do you expect that somebody's ever not going to pursue that, you know, sexual gratification in the way that pleases them, even if it's illegal and, you know, obviously morally reprehensible in this case, but it explains why there's such a high recidivism rate. Well, and I'm, I do a monthly podcast episode on Gielan Maxwell, and I was researching that and because it is very, very rare for women to be involved in this type of abuse, especially with her you know, for doing it, you know, going out and finding allegedly three girls a day for Jeffrey Epstein for his quote unquote massages. But really it's, it's so ingrained in the mind because the, for the men, yes, it is physical, whether it's having control over the child or it's sexual gratification, but for women, it's more emotional. So is it, you know, for some sort of, you know, financial security or emotional security or, you know, why is it that she did that? And, and we talk about that on the show, but, but there is, there is definitely physical gratification for the men, but there's also psychological gratification because they have the control and, and it's like a, they're conquering something, you know, like, like you said, the, uh, the lion singling out the herd. Yeah, that's really interesting. Like, I always wonder, what do they get out of it? She was like an educated woman from, you know, prominent background. And you would think that she would be kind of impervious to this influence of this man who's trying to get her to sexually exploit young girls. But yet, obviously, she was getting something out of that relationship. And he, Jeffrey Epstein, probably knew how to make her feel good and make her feel like she was useful and providing a really great service. And that must have been somehow gratifying to her emotionally. Or her father had died, I think, before she met Jeffrey Epstein. If you look at the news reports, and she had a trust where she received $100,000 a year. And that was definitely not going to fulfill her needs when it came to living in New York City because she had moved in New York City and that's where she met Jeffrey. So maybe she met him at a time in her life where he had so much money and he could give her the lifestyle that she wanted. And it started out one way and then it turned into something else. I'm not definitely not giving her a pass by any stretch of the imagination for her to do what she did. But um, it's interesting to think about how it is that, you know, you can go from one lifestyle and then get into his lifestyle and be in such a perverse role in it. Yeah, that definitely makes sense, especially if she's living in New York City. $100,000 a year isn't going to suffice if you're living in the city. It's expensive. No, exactly. And, you know, to have what her background was um, when she lived in the UK, it's a completely different thing. So, yeah, so she and then also losing her father, because I think she was the favorite. He named his boat the Gielen. And uh, that was ironically the boat that um, I I think he died. I think he drowned off that boat or something. I'm going to have to go look through my notes. But um, but yeah, it's it's a fascinating story. I'm absolutely fascinated by it. And so I do updates once a month on it. 
there could be a level of normalization with the exploitation of young girls. Like we don't know if she herself was sexually abused when she was young or when she was like an underage girl. Those are just things we don't know, right? Exactly. And that's how the predators groom the victims is they completely normalize it. And that's what uh, allegedly in, in the court documents, what Jeffrey Epstein and Guillen would do. And Guillen allegedly participated in these massages where she would maybe take her clothes off or she would do something where the girl would supposedly feel more comfortable because if they see adults doing it. So they definitely normalize the sexual aspect of it to get these girls to be compliant. It almost feels like there's a dominant and submissive role and that like, like a Leonard Lake and Robert Ng, like they're not killing people, but at the same time, there's certainly somebody who's taking the more dominant position. And that's Jeffrey Epstein being that he's in the financial power position. And I think he must get off on having Ghislaine like participate in these acts as well. Yes, absolutely. And you know, reportedly, she was his girlfriend and for a little while. But if you read the deposition that came out, it's like a 400 and something page deposition that came out last week. It's, it's just fascinating how she 100% was on board with covering up what Jeffrey Epstein was doing. And she, I mean, I mean, she was so difficult for those attorneys to depose her because she would ask questions like, okay, when you say female, what do you mean by female? I mean, it was just one thing after the other for probably eight hours, um, but she wasn't giving up anything. She wouldn't give up the fact that she knew that, uh, that Jeffrey Epstein was abusing these young girls. However, she claimed that she knew that he he was a sex, he was on the sex registry list. So yeah, very interesting. There's an element of her and her like excuses and justifications, denials, and kind of the fact that she seemed to be involved in the level. There's something about her that does remind me slightly of Shamika Young, even though they've got completely different backgrounds. There's just those excuses and those justifications. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. And Casey Anthony's mom, she did the same thing. Totally. It's funny, she's come up in other episodes on this as well, just because of the way she handled the case, excusing, justifying it, and the lies that she told is just such a heartbreaking case. So what, in your opinion, if anything, can be done to ensure that shelters and similar environments to where Relisha was living are safer for children? Again, I'm not sure the shelter was the problem in this scenario. I would say I haven't been in a shelter. I don't know what security at a shelter is, but if they're funded by the government at all or by the states, I, I would say that there's an element of security there. However, again, if the parents were weren't watching the children, I think that's a bigger problem than what's going on. Well, I mean, I think both of those are problems. Definitely. So do you believe that CPS would have been able to do anything to intervene positively in the life of Relisha or would the result likely have been the same due to underfunding and understaffing? You know, I have worked with CPS before and they are very good at what they do. However, they just have so many cases and they can only do so much. And if I think we'll talk about this in in a few minutes, but CPS can only take the information that they have and they can do their investigation and they can interview people. And sometimes the children get taken away. Sometimes the children are put back. So I'm not sure CPS didn't do everything that they could under the circumstances that they had. I don't think there's enough information for me to make a, a statement one way or the other with regard to that. That's difficult. If we actually knew from any of the caseworkers more information, we could make a better judgment call. But with what little information we have, their hands may have been tied. Yes, yes, absolutely. And it sounds to me like they did respond uh, after the fact. Um, But what the relationship was that Shamika had with CPS prior to the death of her daughter, um, we don't know. Okay, so enter Khalil Tatum. We've talked about the risks associated with individuals such as Khalil having access to children. Right away, it seems Khalil takes a liking to Relisha. Is this problematic in your opinion? Absolutely. And that's where if you have parents who are 
on top of it and taking care and watching out for their kids, they're not going to allow their children to have unescorted access with someone like that. Oh, I agree. The fact that he was given kind of unobstructed overnight access to Relisha is one of the worst parts of this case for me. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. But taking for a parent who's living in a shelter who may or may not have a drug problem, I don't know what Shamika's issues were. Uh, that's, you know, I mean, that that could be a, a normal, that could be a relief possibly for a parent who may or may not have a drug problem, who has someone who seems very nice, who can take their kid to nice places and do nice things. I mean, that's maybe that's what she was thinking. I don't know. I'm pretty sure that Shamika had an ongoing drug problem. I don't know if she was using at the time of Relisha's disappearance, but I think you're absolutely right. It could have been like, great, this is one less child I have to worry about. Now I can just, you know, enjoy being high or or whatever she was doing. It's just less responsibility that she had to worry about in her chaotic life. Yes, yes, that's that that could be. Shouldn't there be background checks conducted on individuals who work close or have access to children? such as the position of janitor in the homeless shelter with plenty of children, some say hundreds. Well, I know that in positions where people have access to children, whether it's a teacher, a preschool teacher, anything like that, background checks are done. But whether a janitor would have that, I doubt, because security checks are expensive so I wouldn't, I don't know if, and the homeless shelter, it isn't just about the children. It's, it's, it's about all families. I don't know what his hours were, if he was working nights uh, or where he was working, whether he had access to the kids. Obviously, he did have access to the children. But in that sort of position, I'm not sure if security checks uh, would be done in that situation. We know that Khalil bought Relisha a tablet as well as took her to Disney on Ice. I'm very bothered by these gifts. Yes, and that's all part of the grooming process, trying to get the child to trust him that, look, I gave you all these nice things. I took you to all these nice places. Now, why don't you do this for me? Why don't you make me feel good? Why don't you meet my needs? Khalil was a janitor. Like I find it hard to believe he would have been able to afford items such as these on his salary. Tablets were expensive seven years ago. Do you think it's possible that he was engaged in illegal activity and that's why he had access to funds to purchase gifts for Relisha and do things such as get her nails done? Well, the money had to come from somewhere. So unless he was independently wealthy and uh, if he wasn't making that much as a janitor, he had to have been getting the money somewhere. So if he's in a community that he's living in, like that uh, or living near that, it's definitely possible. As I just mentioned, Khalil took Relisha to get her nails done on at least once, perhaps several occasions. Do you think this was an attempt to sexualize and beautify her? Um, I don't know if it was as much trying to beautify her, but it was, like I said, definitely part of the grooming pro process to get her to like him to get her to trust him, to get her to tell him secrets, to open up to her so that she would be open to possibly getting into some sort of sexual relationship, whether or not, you know, she can't choose to be in a relationship like that because she's underage, but that's in their minds, that's what they're trying to do, these pedophiles. What happens following these gifts is the most disturbing in my opinion. And that's the fact that Khalil is allowed access to Relisha in the Chimika, her mother permits Relisha to stay overnight at the home of the 51-year-old janitor, as I previously mentioned. Yes, and that's, again, obviously, he, Khalil, built trust with the family in some way in order for them to think it was okay or to permit that to happen. But again, you know, when you go back to the Dr. Nasser or with Sadowski, Sadowski was bringing boys to his home and taking them down into his basement. So, you know, the pay, that's not unusual. <laughs> it's happened before. Uh, so it's not necessarily just because Shamika was in the shelter situation, because you had other parents who are trusted these people um, enough to allow them to have access to their kids like that. 
Those people have a certain role, though, and it's a prominent position. I would say to the janitor in a homeless shelter, the one who's known to be creepy with young girls, would have a little less respect and prominence in the eyes of that specific community than, say, like Dr. Nasser or, you know, Sandusky. Wouldn't you agree? I don't know. I mean, maybe he had a big personality and maybe, you know, he was friendly. Maybe, you know, he's giving gifts to the kids. You know, the parents may have viewed him in a different way than the kids viewed them. That's entirely possible. It just seems so bizarre because other witnesses said he was creepy with the young girls. So it sort of painted a picture that he was kind of known as being like, oh, the pervy janitor. But I could be wrong with that. No, I mean, yeah. But then that's the, the question is, why would her parents, why would Shamika allow that to happen if that was his reputation? Exactly. Shamika later gives the excuse that Khalil is like a godfather to her daughter. Do you buy this or do you think that Shamika is making excuses and trying to distance herself from any responsibility here? I don't know how long she lived in that uh, facility, but unless she had been there for almost a decade and she knew him for that long a period of time, I don't know when. Do you know when she met him? I think it was with only months. It wasn't years. Yeah, so that's that's a stretch to me, you know, to call someone that you've only known for a short amount of time a, uh, a godfather. She'd never even been to his house for dinner or anything like that. So I find it hard to believe that these two adults had a close enough relationship or bond that she would call him the godfather to one of her children. It's bizarre. Yeah, that, that's, that's a pretty good stretch. Yeah. Then we have what is a major red flag, given the history of Relisha at the school. Remember, her teachers had taken quite a liking to the young girl, bringing her food and clothing. Her absence would have been taken seriously. It does seem curious that Relisha is said to have had an illness and be under the care of Dr. Tatum, but no proper doctor's note is provided. Yeah, I wonder about that, because really the only time a doctor's note would be provided is if she was missing school a lot. I remember it would just be a parent's note saying that my kid was sick, blah, blah, blah. But um, yeah, so that's very strange. I would guess that the school requested a doctor's note because she was out for so long, or maybe she, she was out, I don't know. That's the only thing that I could think of as to why the school would be asking for a doctor's note So, or how this mysterious illness came in. Was it because they called Shamika to ask her where she was because she wasn't coming to school routinely? That's all I can think of on that. The school tries to call Dr. Tatum. And what shouldn't have been a shocker to anyone listening, the call doesn't go through as dialed. There appears to be no one by that name, at least not with the number provided by Shamika. What should the school have done at this point? Do you think they should have called law enforcement? Yeah. If this child is missing and, you know, the school must have really, really been involved for them to be asking for a doctor's name and a doctor's number because under no circumstances can the doctor talk about their patient you know, unless law enforcement is asking or, or if in a murder investigation or, or what have you. So um, for the school to get that, that is an indicator to me that the school was very involved and very suspicious that something bad was going on with Relisha. It seemed to be this indefinite amount of time that she was going to be absent and there was no other alternate plans made for any other learning strategy. So that had to have been a red flag as well. Sure. No, Absolutely. Absolutely. Eventually, the school manages to get a hold of Shamika. Shamika, of course, says, yes, yes, I'll be there for the meeting and I'll bring Dr. Tatum. I mean, come on, who is this doctor that he can't pick up his phone, but he can show up at a meeting at a child's school? This doesn't sound like any doctors I know. No, I mean, it sounds like somebody is trying to buy time. Yeah, that's exactly what it sounds like. At this point, this is no surprise, but neither Shamika Young or the mysterious Dr. Tatum show up. The school counselor calls police. Was this the right move in your opinion? I I believe so. I mean, I I think calling CPS and the police, if they believe that the child is missing, is definitely the right move. What options are available to schools if they feel a child is in an unsafe environment? Is there only CPS or do they have other options to intervene for the welfare of a child? I believe nowadays schools must have some sort of policy that they 
do. They have guidance as to exactly this is what's going to happen in this type of situation. So I would imagine that they would be calling CPS or if they needed to call the police in, they would be doing that as well. Police are alerted, as I just mentioned, as well as CPS. It seems both go and investigate the shelter. They find that Relisha hasn't been seen since late February, and it's now mid-March. What would have been going through the minds of law enforcement, in your opinion? I would say that unless they had a good, good reason as to where this child is and they can't produce the child, then I would imagine that they, in that type of a situation, since Relisha was nowhere to be found and the mother couldn't produce her, then I would imagine that law enforcement would initiate an investigation at that point. Also, law enforcement finds out that there is no Dr. Tatum, but they do find out about the janitor, Khalil Tatum, the felon and recidivist defender who likes young girls. Authorities had to be panicking at this point. Well, I would suspect that if they've gotten to the point where they're talking about a Dr. Tatum, they are interviewing someone, so they've already initiated an investigation. And I'm sure at that point, he was included in their investigation. It's not looking good. What authorities do next is check CCTV for evidence of Relisha and Khalil Tatum. The next day that Relisha is seen on March 1st, well, Khalil then stopped showing up for work. What does this tell you? It seems pretty concerning to me. Oh, yeah. So if there's a change of behavior for him that he doesn't show up at work, likely there's a problem. He's either running from something or if she disappears and then he disappears, I think, yeah, that's definite. The FBI would call that a clue. Yeah, that's a big clue for sure. Yes. Yeah. Next, police discover that the day preceding the last known footage of Relisha, Khalil Tatum visits a hardware store. As I have mentioned throughout, this is like a murder cleanup kit. Lime, garbage bags, and a shovel. Gosh, you know, it, it reminds me of the Lori Vallow case, doesn't it? <laughs> oh, yeah, definitely. Her, that case is just so many twists and turns, and it is so bizarre and heartbreaking. Yeah, and those children, I think they were buried on the boyfriend's property or something like that. So, yeah, no, that's a, that's a big, that's a red flag as well. I'm so troubled by the fact that Shamika Young, Relisha's mother, seemed to help cover up the disappearance of her daughter. At this point, we know that she has written the note and made up this fictitious Dr. Tatum. So I would imagine if she's doing this, that she's getting pressure, that she's going to be looked at for neglect or maybe even a case against her for the disappearance of the child. Maybe they're investigating her for, you know, potentially murdering her. So I would think at this point, she has to cover her bases in some way. I mean, I don't, like I said, I don't know about the case, but she's trying to come up with excuses as to where her daughter might be or what have you. I would imagine that uh, she's fearing for her own future. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Yeah, she's definitely got to be covering her butt on this, hoping that she doesn't end up going to prison. Yes, yes. The accounts differ according to sources, but we have either Khalil Tatum, his wife Andrea, and two other individuals, not Relisha, this much is a fact, or it may just be Khalil and Andrea enter the room. In any event, Andrea doesn't come out. She's found shot dead in the bed of the Red Roof Inn. Some believe that she killed herself, though this seems unlikely as the gun isn't found at the scene. Right. Yeah. I've never uh, heard of anybody going to uh, suicide if uh, somebody had shot themselves in the head and the 
and the gun wasn't there. <laughs> so I would imagine, I mean, I, I feel for her family, but I would imagine that, uh, that it was a murder, not a suicide on that one for sure. Yeah, there's a lot of conspiracy theories with this case, but that one just doesn't line up with the evidence that we have. Absolutely not. We know that soon after Khalil Tatum is found with a self-inflicted gunshot wound to the head in a park shed, he kills himself with the same gun that was used to kill Andrea. So we can assume with a high degree of certainty that he pulled the trigger, killing Andrea in a murder-suicide. What are your thoughts on this whole strange situation? Yeah, that sounds uh, very, very likely that that could have happened that way. Um, and and who, you just don't know, did the wife find out about Relisha? Why, you know, did she become, you know, some sort of witness? Why would she, you know, did she say that she was going to go to the police and uh, turn him in? There, it's It's very, very interesting why he felt compelled to take his wife to a hotel. I mean, why would he? go in a hotel room because that's a place where there's a lot of people and people would hear the gunshot. So I'm not sure if, you know, maybe it was a spontaneous thing that, that happened at the hotel or a motel, because if, if it were me and I wanted to do that, or if it was premeditated, you probably wouldn't do it at a place where there are so many people around. If you don't have a home and you're just bouncing from hotel room to hotel room, if I were him, I would think, okay, well, how can I conceal the sound? And I would use like a couch pillow or something like that and hope like as an attempt to make a homemade silencer. I don't know what he did. And we know very little about the actual scene. So I'm just speculating here. Right. But why wouldn't he take her out into the woods or take her somewhere where no one would hear the shot if it was premeditated. So that kind of is an indicator to me that it was more of a spontaneous thing that, uh, that he did in the hotel room. Absolutely. But there could have also not been a good story in order to lure her out somewhere sure. desolate like the woods. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And he, and, and he left. So, you know, obviously he, he got away uh, because nobody apprehended him after they heard the gunshot. Yeah, and I didn't hear anything about witnesses saying anything about a gunshot, just that she was discovered when they started looking for Khalil Tatum. Wow, yeah. interesting. Okay, so back for a moment to the surveillance. We do know that Khalil, when he was in the company of Relisha, was seen on video, and there was no one else, insofar as we know, to make an appearance in the room. Does this seem as though Khalil Tatum is likely abusing Relisha and not pimping her out to other men, based on this evidence alone? You know, in that type of situation... You know, unless he was known to be pimping out other girls, I would suspect that it was just a one-on-one -on -one relationship between the two of them. Um, because I think you would look at his background to see if, you know, was he arrested for pimping and pandering or was he a sexual predator? So I think it's just gonna, a lot would be um, depending on what his background was, but it doesn't sound to me based on the elements of the story that I know that that's what he was doing. Can we do a sidebar for a moment? What are your sure. thoughts on polygraphs? Uh they're not admissible in a court of law. However, they're a great tool to uh, for interrogation. And uh, I, I, I've used them before in my investigations, and I'm a big uh, believer in the polygraph. We know that Shamika, Relisha's mother, as well as her boyfriend Antonio, and Relisha's grandmother Melissa, all appeared on the Steve Wilco show. We also know that Antonio and Melissa passed their polygraphs. At the last minute, Shamika refused to take a polygraph even though it was the whole premise for her appearing on the show. Yeah, I think that's a good indicator right there. And uh, that would surprise me that she would go on a show like that if she had any, yeah, I, that, that to me, I'm not really sure what that's all about. Maybe she just thought she was smarter than everybody and could outsmart the polygraph. And then at the last minute, she just went, oh crap, like maybe I can't and I don't want to be embarrassed on live TV. Yeah, because I think uh, Steve Wilkos, I think he was a police officer. So he, I'm sure they're using a, a really good polygrapher on that show. Uh, but yeah, but how many people go on that show and, and fail their polygraphs? A lot of people think that they can, they can lie their way through it, but they can't. Yeah, absolutely. And I think maybe she was just overconfident and hoping that she'd be able to get away with it. But when push came to shove, she was like, I don't need to do this. And it's going to serve to some, in some people's minds as irrefutable evidence to my guilt. Obviously, it's not admissible, but in the minds of the public. 
Yeah, she it probably got away from her, I would imagine. And then she realized that it wasn't a great idea to go on that show. Oh, I'm sure in retrospect, she regrets it. Yeah, yeah. Also, advice to those charged with a crime. In your opinion, if they're innocent, should they take a polygraph, yay or nay? Well, usually when a child goes missing or, or if a child is kidnapped, the parents are polygraphed because they want to move them out of the way as far as persons of interest. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think even if they are innocent, they should take a polygraph because that allows the police to focus on other persons of interest. Yeah, that's a good point. And I've always heard John Walsh say, if your child goes missing, absolutely take a polygraph so the authorities can focus their attention where it needs to be on who might have actually abducted or murdered your child. Yes, absolutely. And I mean, if you look at the the JonBenet Ramsey case, I mean, her parents, they were looked at, you know, consistently, constantly. And I'm not sure if they took polygraphs immediately following or if they waited for an extended period of time. I don't remember on that case. But uh, yeah, the best way to clear yourself so that the resources can go in the right direction. And if your child is missing and you had nothing to do with that, I mean, you're more than happy to take a polygraph. There's no reason for you not to take one so that the police can do that. Yeah, I understand both sides of it. I, I get that if you are innocent and for whatever reason, your emotions are somehow convoluted and it comes up as either, you know, a fail or... Inconclusive. Is, yeah, incon- if it comes up as fail or inconclusive, then, you know, you're going to be looked at really hard and the resources aren't going to be kind of diverted to searching for somebody outside. I see that point as well, but I tend to agree. Like if it was, if I had a child and they were missing, I would probably, you know, take a polygraph just because I would want the authorities not to be looking at me as a suspect and to put their time and effort where it should be finding out who took my child. Absolutely. I would do the exact same thing. Now, let's for a moment go through a couple of the theories. I won't touch on the conspiracy theory that Khalil Tatum was murdered, etc. The police ruled this possibility out and I don't want to give it more time than I already have. Do you think there's a possibility that Shamika Young, Relisha's mother, was pimping out her daughter to Khalil Tatum? Well, I have seen in the past, in past cases, where parents have pimped out their kids for for drugs. Uh, that's happened in the past. I've seen it where babies were in hotel rooms with pedophiles while the mother was in the next room um, doing drugs. So drugs are very, very powerful and they take away all of your senses of, of doing what you're supposed to be doing. So, you know, it sounded to me if he could get her daughter though, just for giving drugs, why was he taking her to Disney on ice? And why was he taking her to the nail salon? So it sounded to me that he was grooming the child versus um, another transaction between him and the mother. Do you think there's a possibility that Shamika and Khalil were pimping out Relisha together? Or do you think it's unlikely? Um, you know, it, it just doesn't sound that I, I haven't seen anything in, in the materials that you've given me or heard anything from our conversation that indicated that they had that type of uh, relationship. Is there any way to the theory that Relisha could have been sold into sex trafficking? Like, do you think that there's any hope that she's alive and out there? <sighs> you know, um, it's it's just really hard to say. I mean, it was, did Khalil have the contacts where, you know, he could have sold her into sex trafficking and, and why would he, if he was getting what he wanted out of her? So I, I don't see any of this as transactional as far for financial gain. Um, it just, it doesn't read that way to me. And it doesn't explain the garbage bags, lime and a shovel. Right. Exactly. Is there exactly. Any, is there any scenario, in your opinion, where Shamika had no idea of what was going on and is completely innocent? Well, the fact that she let her child go with him, you know, I don't know. I, I think the police would be looking at her for neglect in, in some way. But, yeah, I don't know. Um, it, it's just really hard to say what uh, what the police, if they're looking at her, if they're not looking at her. Um, but her child that she's responsible for has gone missing and it sounded like she was telling lies to cover up the fact that she was gone for a period of time. So that seems, you know, is she trying to cover herself 
or was she involved in it? It's it's hard to say. There's got to be some level of culpability or obstruction of justice there and that authorities could have properly investigated what was going on. The reason they didn't is because she created this like smoke screen and that there was an illness and Relisha was under the care of this Dr. Tatum. Has she not done that and authorities properly investigated earlier? We may not be having this conversation and this might not have ever happened to Relisha if she hadn't have given the access to her daughter to Khalil Tatum. Right. Obviously, Tamika allowed her daughter to go with him. And if she wasn't returned on a date that she should be returned, I mean, did she just let she just let Relisha live with him? It, you know, that's that's what is unusual. I mean, maybe she just let her go off with him and she wasn't expecting her to come back. You know, you just don't know what the, the nature of their relationship was. We believe that Khalil Tatum likely murdered Relisha and that is the reason for the murder of his wife, Andrea, and then his later parent suicide. I, I don't know. I can't say one way or the other, but it just, I mean, the, it doesn't look good. You've got the dead wife, you've got the shovel and the lime and the garbage bags, and he kills himself. And you've got her missing. So you know, there's definitely a case here. Yeah. What are your thoughts on how race may have factored into the lack of media coverage? You know, I think that is a uh, an issue. It is a huge issue. It sounds to me like the police were investigating this case. So whether or not there was media coverage, there was an investigation that was taking place. But that's it's very unfortunate that um, that, that is happening in our society. If Relisha looked like John Bonet Ramsey or Madeline McCann, there would have been far more media coverage. It's very unfortunate. If a child is suffering at the hands of a predator, what is their best resource? How do how do they reach out and get help? They need to tell somebody, an adult, someone that they feel safe with. So whether it was a school teacher, whether it's a relative, whether it's a neighbor, they need to find someone who they trust that they can tell. That is definitely what they need to do or else it's just going to continue. Is there any hope for family members who see their loved ones in an unhealthy home environment? Do the courts often take kids away from parents when it's an unsafe environment, or is this rare in your opinion? No, that's what CPS does for a living. They want to make sure that the kids are safe. So if they are called into a situation where a child is being harmed or an unhealthy home, they will take the child out of the home and put them in foster care, and then the court system gets involved in it. So, um, so yeah, definitely. And if we can go back to that last question about if a child is suffering at the hands of a predator, there are so many great videos on the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children website that keep kids safe. And there's also Erin um, Runyon, her daughter, Samantha Runyon, was kidnapped and sexually assaulted and murdered. And uh, that was, she was one of the guests on our show behind the crime scene. And she created a, an organization that keeps kids safe as well. So, um, so if anybody is having any issues and they don't know how to deal with it, um, either going to the police and asking the question or going to the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, there's a lot of helpful information there as well. So Gina, you spoke to me about a case you worked that was similar to this. Can you tell my listeners about it? So I didn't work the case. I actually it happened in Orange County where I think it was a father who kidnapped the child, was with the father. The father had custody of the child for a limited amount of time. The child was supposed to go back to the mother and then that never happened. And then the father wound up killing himself. So not only did they never find the child, but the, the father killed himself as well. So um, so that was a case I was talking about. I want to thank Gina Osborne for coming on the show. I also want you all to check out Behind the Crime Scene. I will, as I said, play a promo at the end of the episode. Gina, do you want to tell us a little bit more about your pod one more time and just let everyone know where to find you on social media? Great. I will do that. Thank you so much. So you can go to our website, which is Behind the Crime Scene, Dot com and on Twitter I'm at behind the crime two and Facebook behind the crime scene we have a special page where we send out um, the different episodes that we're going to do each week 
Uh, we're also on LinkedIn. So I would just invite uh, everyone to come in and listen. And um, we actually, I'd love to hear from people who listen. And I love to hear it when people ask us to do a, a specific case that they're fascinated with. And the Aurora, Colorado movie theater massacre, one of my loyal listeners reached out to me and said, hey, can you do a case on that? And we wound up doing a three-part episode. So I love to be interactive with our audience. And um, yeah, I hope to see you all behind the crime scene. Thank you for tuning in. I just want to remind you to subscribe, rate, and review if you enjoyed my coverage on Relisha Rudd. It's a great and free way to support the shows you love. You can reach out to me on Twitter at Podcast Riddle or email me at riddlemethatpod at gmail.com. Till next time, stay safe and remember, accept nothing, question everything. What haunts you? I'm Gina Osborne, retired FBI assistant special agent in charge. I host Behind the Crime Scene, a true crime podcast that explores the human side of first responders, investigators, and prosecutors. In each episode, I dive deep into the world of some of the worst crimes in U.S. history. I go behind the scenes to show how these cases impacted the lives of the heroes who responded to them. I hope you join me behind the crime scene. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.